As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Phyllis Lindstrom Vertel. <laughs> R.I.P. Chloris. My name is Aida Osman. And it's Black History Month. Wow. So that's something to celebrate. Welcome back to Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. We're doing it again. It's Groundhog Day. Oh, God oh, damn it. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know how lost I was in this moment? <laughs> The confusion. <laughs> now I'm thinking about the career of Andy McDowell. Yeah. All right. I'm lost in thought. Don't think about Andy McDowell's career. <laughs> Remember when people are like, she deserves an Oscar nomination for Magic Mike. I'm like, she was fine? Okay, great. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> After I saw Happiest Season, I watched Multiplicity again because I was like, you know what? I'm on an Andy kick. I'm feeling it. And no, wait a minute. Andy McDowell is not in Happiest Season. That's Mary Steenburgen. Mm, well, both white women who <laughs> work too much. Well, at fun, well, funny enough, there was a tweet once upon a time that someone said, uh, I, I wish I had the author because it's an amazing tweet, is that uh, Mary Steenburgen is the Meryl Streep of Andy McDowell's. So there you go. And also, uh, Mary Steenburgen's son is Charlie McDowell that she had with the actor Malcolm McDowell. And he always does a joke where he calls Andy McDowell and calls her mom. And it's not. It's His mom is... Mary was Dean Virgin. Well, love to kick off Black History Month by confusing <laughs> two white women. <laughs> That's feels right feels right appropriate. Speed. Also, did the, the the little thing see its shadow? Yes or no? Are we? Is it going to be cold? What's the do deal? we still do that? We do. do they we still, still do, do that. that. Lewis might know this. What's the name of the groundhog? Punxsutawney Phil. It's like Poughkeepsie. <laughs> Poughkeepsie <laughs> Pam. <laughs> What's the thing's name? No, Poughkeepsie Pam went to the Capitol. That not the same person. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. Good point. I think the groundhog should stay at home. I know she saw that shadow. The groundhog should stay at home. <laughs> uh, listen to stay at home orders. Mm-hmm. The mm. groundhog does not need to be at outdoor dining looking for his shadow or her shadow. Pugsatawney Phil was on Close Friends in Puerto Vallarta a month ago. I was horrified. Oh, my God. That's so embarrassing for him. <laughs> Is that the groundhog's real name? Pugsatawney <laughs> Phil, yeah. Yeah. It has like 17 <laughs> consonants in it for no reason. Why do, why do you know this? Of course Louis knows this. <laughs> well, Jeopardy. You were on Jeopardy. Of course. There's that. I, well, to, well, also, to be fair, I just had to write jokes about it this morning for my other job. So he's been on my mind. Oh, okay. Oh, right. George has been on my mind. Okay. But... Mm-hmm. You know. Well, Stacey Abrams is nominated for the Nobel Prize, and nobody has figured out that you can nominate everybody for the Nobel Prize. So the nomination <laughs> process is not as important as winning it. When people were sharing on social media that Black Lives Matter was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, I was like, yes, congrats to them, but also Donald Trump was nominated <laughs> right. for a Nobel Peace Prize last year. Like Anyone around the world could just be nominating people. So we got to wait until the actual... Peace prizes come out. Well, she's the only reason I think any of us are going to experience peace for the next four years. So I'm happy, and she should get it. And I'll be sending my emails to the proper people. Um, speaking of Miss Stacey Abrams, she is at the top of my list 
of books that I want to recommend to people for Black History Month. Oh, reading. Okay. Love a segue. <laughs> and sure. I know that people who listen to the podcast love book recommendations. Sure. But yes, I did make a list of books that I wanted to recommend to people to read, and, and we're going to continue to do that every week this month uh, to give people a little reading list, give people a little something to pick up. And the first one is Lead from the Outside, uh, which is a book from Stacey Abrams from 2018 because a lot of people talk about Stacey Abrams. A lot of people make Stacey Abrams memes. Mm -hmm. A lot of white people say Stacey Abrams saved our lives. But (laughs) how many of them have actually read any of her words? I wonder. (laughs) They sort of have an idea of her from a clip on The View, maybe. But maybe it was muted on their phone, too. (laughs) Who knows? They're like, I know her pinned pinned tweet on Twitter is a video and I've seen it. (laughs) (laughs) They know that she likes Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And shoulder pads. Maybe they know that she also writes romance novels. I think that's next level. I think you're wrong. I think only we know that. <laughs> thinking of her just like running for office, thinking of her organizing the black vote in Georgia while also late at night lighting like a um, diptyque beige candle and then <laughs> typing. Woodwick. He soy. thrust himself. <laughs> he thrust himself into her, stumping her speech. <laughs> well, that's too much. Take it back. See, have you read a Stacey book? Yeah. Have you read her words? Is that how she talks? That is exactly how she talks, Aida. Good God. <laughs> now, is this book anything like White Fragility, which I read? I'm sorry, that's a joke. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, of course. <laughs> my, my second recommendation is to not recommend the book White Fragility to anyone ever again. That is the only book that Subway people seem to know. And when you have like Instagram influencers taking photos with the book White Fragility, maybe it's time to... Leave it at the library. Yeah. I do think that would be a good Halloween costume maybe next year. Like someone recommending White Fragility. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like someone approaching you and be like, I have to tell you about this book that you will really benefit from. Really scary. Can we talk about Black Fragility? Because every time someone recommends White Fragility, <laughs> I feel myself start to break. <laughs> As people who talk about pop culture, obviously, on this podcast, um, it took me far too long um, to read the essay collection Thick um, by Tressie McMillan Cotton, but... Uh, it was actually really fantastic. I um, mean, it was, uh, we rarely get uh, essay books on popular culture from black women. And I really enjoyed uh, all of her essays. And she's an academic as well, Dr. Tressie. <laughs> so um, it is academic while also funny and while also being relatable. So um, you feel a little bit smarter having read it. So that helps. When academics can make it a little bit funny, thank you so much. Because guess who's lost? Me. So you got to throw in some jokes. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> I fall apart. That sounds like a good read. I just realized we're only at two. I really thought White Fragility was a suggestion. <laughs> okay. Um, I also read a novel um, this week in two days, actually, um, titled Real Life by Brandon Taylor. And it is a story of, that felt a little close to home. It is a black gay student at a um, graduate program in biology in the midwest um, so, so you, know, you. him <laughs> okay you know, yeah me biologist <laughs> Ira Madison. biologist uh, of cinema <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh 
it's about his interactions with his white friends at the school who are some of them are gay, some of them are straight, some of them are maybe straight. Uh, and it starts with him um, hooking up with a ostensibly straight friend and what happens over that weekend as um, some of their lives start to crumble. And it is it is beautiful, actually. And it's been a while since I've read a book where the prose immediately grabbed me and I also just like could not put it down in the sense that mm-hmm. um, I finished it in one and a half days. I guess The Vanishing Half was the last book that I did um, where I just like whipped through that. But the prose in this um, is even um, more like intricate, I think, than um, Britt Bennett's was in The Vanishing Half. You know, it feels... Um, not Didion-esque, but, you know, if, if, you, if the, the sentences are constructed mm. beautifully. So definitely recommend that book. I've been excited to read this book after I found out that it's getting adapted into a movie by Kid Cudi's new production company, and he's to play Wallace. So that could be interesting. Oh, wow. Is he? We'll see what happens. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. But also. Yes. Carry on. I connected <laughs> to the book because Wallace also, like, there's jokes from, like, like a white, French character in the book who uh, mm-hmm. is a rude faggot who when Wallace tells the French person like uh, what are you on Grinder to make friends and then the French person is like what are you on Grinder for Weight Watchers Woof. <laughs> and I just I just don't think that you know the experience of a slightly overweight black gay man is Kid Cudi but maybe he'll gain some weight for it yeah I mean just for the conversations that people are gonna have about you know queer actors portraying queer roles especially or not queer actors portraying queer roles when first of all I don't know anything about Kid Cudi's business but two the the author of the book has signed off on Kid Cudi playing this character so mm. it will be it'll be fun to chat with the girls about how they feel about that yeah well you know I would love to have brands up on the show because it is truly one of the best books I've read in years mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's a and it's a debut novel too I sometimes forget in my like ADHD rattled brain that a book is something you can read in a day and a half as, as in, if it's entertaining, you will get through it. You know, I mean, I'm, and I'm not saying all books should be compulsively entertaining, but like, it's it's a doable assignment. I almost feel about books sometimes how I feel about like folding laundry or something. Like, it'll never mm-hmm. end. It's a horrible experience. No, not true. You can you can enjoy these things. That's my contribution. Books equal good. Well, you know, it it is a little similar to folding laundry in that if you set down a book for even. Two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye to reading that book. Just like, oh, you know, I folded three things. Let me just sit over here, <laughs> check my email. Yeah. Two days later, that laundry is on my couch. <laughs> and I think I have recommended this book before, um, but I've been rereading um, They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us um, by former coworker of mine, Hanif Adurakib. It's got like essays on music in it, uh, and it is from the perspective of like a black man who loves the band Fallout Boy, for instance. Uh, he even has a collection of poetry um, called "A Fortune for Your Disaster," which is a reference to Fallout Boy, uh, and also has a new book coming out in 2021 that I'm gonna pre-recommend, even though I haven't read it <laughs> because I'm sure it's gonna be great. Because it comes out in March, um, but it's called A Little Devil, um, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. Uh, and it is a meditation on black performance in America. 
every time Hanif has written about musicians and um, live performances, I've always been enthralled. So I'm sure that book will be great. So go ahead and pre-order that and read those other two books of his that I recommended. Those are all beautiful recommendations. I'm so excited Hanif has, has another book coming out. Easily one of my favorite authors of all time. This nigga is prolific. <laughs> he really is. He does not stop. <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. But where did you work with Hanif at? Uh, MTV News. Oh, that's so cool. The ill-fated reboot in 2016. <laughs> you <laughs> did your it. best. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Which, in retrospect, was destroyed by Mark Zuckerberg. Because mm. that was the era when Facebook basically lied to companies and was like, video is getting better numbers than, you know, prose writing. And then it turned out those numbers were goosed. Yep. Dark time in media. Yeah, the pivot to video era, which yes. turned out to be <laughs> tricking people into clicking on ads that they then didn't yeah. watch the videos after. Yeah. Oh, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I worked for a site called HitFix. Look it up. <laughs> when, when do you think that we are going to get Adam McKay's um, film on the pivot to video era? <laughs> <laughs> what thankless role can we shoehorn Amy Adams into? <laughs> On this week's Keep It, we'll pay tribute to a few greats we lost this week. Cloris Leachman, Cicely Tyson, and Sophie. We'll also get into the entire GameStop drama, which Aida has promised to explain for all of us. And we'll talk to Amanda Idoko, writer of the upcoming film Breaking News in Yuba County. We'll be right back. Well, this was a week of saying goodbye to beloved people. Jesus Christ. They did not let me rest. Yeah. Day after day. <laughs> we're not even going to cover all of them, I'm sure. The three biggest ones that we're going to get into were um, Cicely Tyson, Oof. Obviously, um, Cloris Leachman and um, Sophie. You're stabbing me. Um, which Ugh. happened this weekend. So, um, Lewis, you mentioned her in the intro. Let's talk about Phyllis Lindstrom herself first. Cloris <laughs> Leachman. Ugh, my girl. Yes, I'm wearing my Mary Tyler Moore show uh, shirt today. I think she was my favorite living legend in that she was such a capable actress in an extraordinary way where she could do... Hard drama, obviously won an Oscar for The Last Picture Show, which is one of the great supporting dramatic performances. In fact, maybe the definitive quote-unquote Oscar scene ever, where she like throws a, a coffee pot and freaks out and uh, reads Timothy Bottoms for filth. <laughs> if you haven't seen that movie recently, by the way, The Last Picture Show, it kind of is like a two-hour Bruce Springsteen song, which is, and I mean that positively, where it's like, it's about people getting by and lamenting the past and, you know, I never did see her again. You know, things like that. I watched it for um, the first time last night, actually. I had never seen The Last Picture Show. I actually really loved it. When we talk about Cecily, thematically um, and in presentation, uh, it reminded me a lot of Sounder. You know, a film about sadness and about people just trying to sort of get by yes. in America. You know, there's there's hopefulness in both of them, but man, are they depressing. Yeah, it's More like hopeful that and sounder. The last picture show is just fucking depressing. Yeah, it's that combination <laughs> of like grit and despair that people have. Um, and by the way, 
how fuck smoking hot is Ellen Burstyn in that movie? Woof. She's yes. like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in addition to Sybil Shepherd, who, whatever. But I was going to say, Cloris Leachman is somebody who worked up until the very last day and did it obsessively. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw an awesome story from uh, John Milheiser, he probably knew from uh, SNL, talking about how he auditioned for something once and he was nervously reading his lines in the lobby and Cloris Leachman walked in. She goes, oh, are you auditioning? She goes, let's run lines. She's somebody who would just act on the spot. She always could just do it, whether it was comedy, whether it was drama. And she has the Emmys to show for it, record-winning Emmy amount. Uh, I truly, truly, truly love her and just one of those people you thought would never leave and so she did and I'm sad about it. Also the Mary Tyler Moore show, fabulous show. Yeah, you know, I would say that my favorite character on the Mary Tyler Moore show was probably Phyllis Mm -hmm. Uh, and when I think of her best moments on the series uh, I think of particularly the season three episode which is maybe my favorite of the Phyllis episodes and it is when her brother is visiting. Oh, lo- oh my God. The gay brother. Yeah, she wants <laughs> her brother to date Mary uh, and then her brother seems to be into Rhoda and she is livid because Rhoda's her nemesis on the series uh, and then Rhoda has to be like baby your brother is gay <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's not into me and it is so funny to have a moment like that in a series during that time, because when Phyllis finds out that her brother is gay, she is elated. Yes. Because that means that he's not into Rhoda. It's weird because when, when, <laughs> when Rhoda goes, he's gay, like there's an audience there. Yeah. And so the reaction is kind of like, it's not what it would be now. Like people are a little bit more confused then. And mm-hmm. for, for then the Phyllis character to be elated really <laughs> sets the audience right. Like, oh no, this is a pro gay moment, you know? Yeah. Her character was someone I always related to as well because it was sort of this like controlled rage that she always had simmering <laughs> yes. in every scene. I remember uh, when she's mad about her brother uh, being out with Rhoda, she sort of waltzes into Mary's party and says, Mary, I hope I don't spoil your party. And Mary's like, why would you spoil my party? You know, with these emotions, I simply can't be held responsible for what I might do. <laughs> Mania. Yeah, yeah, simmering mania yeah. occurring. Um, there, yeah. There's a great scene. Um, basically, Cloris leaves the show, and then Betty White comes on, but they have a moment where Cloris's husband, Lars, is having an affair with Betty White, who plays the amazing Sue Ann Nivens, the happy homemaker, who's, like, sickeningly sweet. And they have a confrontation that is very funny and very emblematic of how talented both actresses are. So just look up Cloris Leachman, Betty White. You'll see it immediately. Well, and Betty won in the end. That's right. She's still alive. That's right. <laughs> oh, oh, in the end. Yes. She, she, will, she, she, will, she will truly never yeah. die. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> she is 300. <laughs> they were all pretty close. Though. The Mary Tyler Moore cast lived a long fucking time for the most part. You've still got Gavin McLeod, who's coming up on 90. Ed Asner's alive. Mm-hmm. Um, we only recently lost, yeah, Cloris and Georgia Angle and uh, Valerie Harper. You know, these are all people who lived a long time. Even Mary. I'm gonna miss Cloris popping up in random voice roles, like totally. you know, Bob's Burgers or like the Croods. She has one of those instantly recognizable voices, probably because she's been around forever. But she, yeah, she's in Phineas and Ferb. She plays like so many characters in that show. It's just surprising, and she can always you know just give us something new with the voice. And she made an appearance in American Gods recently. Yeah, she popped up as she's a very intense. Oh, I love that character. Mm-hmm. 
And I love that show as well. She's somebody who is like kind of legendary for this bygone era, but at the same time, she never stopped working. So there's a whole bunch of people who just know her from, you know, Raising Hope or Dancing with the Stars or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I certainly do not know her from Raising Hope. <laughs> she had her <laughs> moments on that show. She did. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've watched maybe the first season of Raising Hope and then I decided not for me, which is wild. You know, given um, yeah, your your Big Bang tolerance, yeah, Yeah. right, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Uh, But funny side note, I do want to point out that I have seen most of the Mary Tyler Moore spinoff Phyllis, so I'm mostly you know used to Cloris's comedic roles. You know, that's why the Last Picture Show was um, such a lovely viewing for me. But um, that show. Um, where like her husband dies on the show and then she moves to San Francisco. It's wacky and I can see why it only lasted two seasons. But uh, did you know that? I think I know what you're about to say. That opening, the opening, the opening credits of that show had blackface in it. No, because <laughs> I, I watched it recently. Because the theme is amazing. Yeah, the, the theme is the theme is amazing, and it's like this sort of like Broadway ditty, uh, and it has like a bunch of like clips of like singers and like um, her like riding um, the train in SF. But uh, there's a clip of like Broadway performers, and they invert the colors so you can't really tell, but when you like pause and look at it, you can see the color is inverted and they were in blackface. And it's just wild that that aired on TV for two seasons and nobody really did anything, but they probably couldn't even notice um, back then because it wasn't, you know, it's not like it was streaming. Woof. Well. Or or on YouTube, you know, like blinking, you missed it. And the show was canceled after two years. So people did blink and miss it. Right. By the way, speaking of blink and you miss it, there's like a 70 minute movie, literally like 72 minutes. I think it was a TV movie originally called Someone I Touched. Cloris Leachman, mid-70s. Okay. And it's about a woman whose husband cheats on her and gets syphilis. And there's a scene where she finds out about the syphilis and literally backs out of the room. And you sort of think she's just going to walk backwards forever. You just need... It's a crazy movie to see. Please go and watch it. It's free. (laughs) Is this an adaptation of Ibsen's Ghosts? I I mean, it's kind of that level. (laughs) The absurdity, the disorientation of the viewer. That's my favorite absurdist rendering of syphilis. Oh, right, right. Mm But yeah, she she she's truly great, and um, I'm glad that I watched the last picture show uh, for the first time last night because you you really are sort of even understating just how beautiful that scene um, is. Her final scene that I read that she did in one take with no rehearsal as well. She's the kind of person where like, let's say somebody gets fired off a sitcom, like a pilot, and they're like, we need somebody in here in one hour who can know all the lines. Like, let's get <laughs> Cloris. Like, she's one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and speaking of one of those other legends, we lost Cicely Tyson Oof. as well this week. And see that one. The first lady of being a lady, I mean. Yeah. It died right after releasing her memoir. So that is a moment. Yeah, which immediately have to go order now. <laughs> now I have to read that. I, I did order it. <laughs> And that shit's still not here. I'm like, did Lady Gaga make this book? <laughs> the album cover, it looks like the photo that she used for the memoir looks like an Erica Badu still. Like, you know, it's just a perfect oh, yes. photo of her whole bald head at the angle. Like, she's really giving. It is, it is glamour. Glamour. She gave us so much. She, she truly did give us so much. 96 years. And um, she was such a... Such a funny and versatile actress, yes, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, she was relegated more to uh, drama, you know, um, which tells you the lot of um, black actresses at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, she's she's funny. Like I think about her uh, appearance on the game show What's My Line, Soupy Sales, and other people have to like guess who the celebrity is. It's like they're playing twenty questions, and I don't know. Seeing her sitting there like uh, disguising her voice, like doing like these this Minnie Mouse impersonation, so they can't guess who she is. I'm like, yeah, she's funny, <laughs> and I wish that she had gotten the opportunity to be funny, you know. And I sort of. Um, I've been thinking about that this weekend, uh, and I think that losing both Cloris and Cecily in the same week really just sort of like highlights what's wrong with Hollywood, you know? Because uh, when I was thinking of movies to go back and watch that Cecily was in, you know, unfortunately, Cicely Tyson is in a lot of movies that I do not care to rewatch. Oh, no, right? That's true. Because they're, they're just not good. Um, or they're sort of, like, boring, mm-hmm. you know? And it was like, she was, even, like, Sounder, directed by Martin Ritt, is, it's just sort of fine. And honestly, all his movies are just sort of fine, except for Norma Ray. Uh, <laughs> that is a fine movie. A great movie. The other ones are fine. Yeah. The weird thing about Sounder is, I believe it's only one of two movies where... Black actors got Best Actor and Best Actress nominations. It's that and what's mm. love got to do with it. So anyway, we're still <laughs> behind. <laughs> yeah, you know, it is, it's a film that obviously garnered her accolades, but I just sort of think about how if the industry wasn't <laughs> racist, uh, she would have had a lot more to do at the time. It's insane to me that a woman with that range and that much just sort of like... Star power. A, a star power and ability to access like her emotions, the range of emotions that she expresses in Sounder are the exact range of emotions that you get to see like Cloris exhibit in um, The Last Picture Show. And that film set off her and Ellen Burstyn's careers, right? And it's it's just sad to me that like Sounder from that moment didn't set off Cicely Tyson being in every single fucking um, Academy Award nominated film of the 70s and then 80s, right? Mm-hmm. And when you want to go back and look at some of Cicely's last credits, they include A Fall from Grace by Tyler Perry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Diary of a Mad Black Woman. She was in The Help. Like all of these things that, you know, for a, for a woman who was very deliberate about what roles she took as an African-American woman who was, had a very rare opportunity of being one of the first to be in Hollywood. She didn't get a lot of opportunities toward the end of her life, I think. I'm, one of my favorite uh, roles that she did is How to Get Away with Murder. Ophelia Harkness. Oh, I mean, just that. the most fucking intense characters. Five Emmy nominations for it. Yeah, like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding no. me? I want her to play my mother in everything ever. And it's all thanks to you know Shonda, right? And also Pete Nowak, mm-hmm. um, who created that series and show ran it. Her sort of operating in the same space as Viola, who took How to Get Away with Murder because she wasn't getting the roles that she deserved in film. So she was like, I'm going to go do this in television, right? Mm -hmm. How ironic then that Cicely Tyson ended up joining that show so she could get, you know, sort of an amazing role that was layered um, that she hadn't been afforded in the past few years, you know? And, um, yeah, A Fall from Grace is an abysmal film, um, but, you know, like some of the other Tyler Woods, I won't drag as much because at the end of the day, that is why people like him, right? You know, he was mm-hmm. giving roles to black actors and actresses that um, Hollywood wouldn't, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, would she be working 
as much as she had if not for him, you know? And it's a it's it's sort of like a sad state of affairs to be honest. You know, I will I will a legend that we'll we'll always remember, but you know, Cloris and Cicely dying within the same week sort of um reminded me that wow, there was so much more to tap into with Cicely that we deserved. I think also something weird that um, Cloris and Cicely have in common is that they both really emerged as stars in their late 40s. Mm-hmm. So these people appear who are so talented and so self-possessed and have such a, a charisma about them. And it's sort of like if you were a young person watching someone like that, that those people are immediately like your mom's friend mm-hmm. or you know somebody you just think is like there for you in a way. Like you, There's something about those kinds of people you really trust, the people who skip the ingenue phase and are just immediately an adult for your entertainment. And... <laughs> I think it's especially hard to lose people like that because they really feel like, you know, the, like the beacons for us. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of um, how Fran Lebowitz, I think, once said that um, writing is like the only profession where um, there are no um, prodigies because like to be a good writer, you have to have like lived life. And I think in a way, you know, like we see some very good, amazing child actors who just mm-hmm. sort of like tap into something. But... There's really just something about an actor whose career is realized in that moment. I don't know. You think about this industry and you think about um, people who have come here to make it, right? Uh, And we'll be talking about that later with um, Amanda. Uh, You know, but there's just something about these two women who were certainly past an age where they would have been getting like that – Sybil Shepherd role in the last picture show, mm-hmm. uh, which is like which is like a great star making moment for her, uh, and they get those star making moments in their forties, and they are so fucking amazing. And then the careers they have after make them legends. Mm-hmm. So hire more older actors, yeah. especially actresses. Yeah. You know, these are people who can handle monologues. Throw those at them. Yeah, <laughs> we need more people writing for older actresses besides Ryan fucking Murphy. Oh, you said it. Um, yeah, I saw. By the way, I just want to say I saw Cicely Tyson in on stage in the trip to Bountiful uh, in LA. They brought it. So here, fucking which, good. Which wow. she won a Tony for at like yeah. age eighty nine or something. It's just so crazy when people bring it and never stop bringing. It. I, I something I would say about her is she was not exhausted by her own legacy. She just kept working. You know, it's you yeah. picture these people like living up in an ivory tower somewhere, just satisfied with themselves. But obviously, like that's not what acting is about. You want to be in it, and she was. Yeah, it was only last week she was talking to Gail King about her aspirations for the next few years, which included directing a movie. Jesus. <laughs> so she really she had she had everything figured out. I wish that we could have seen that movie. And then, like on another set note, talking about two women who were able to become legends and see, you know, sort of. Um, the fruits of their labor for decades. It's even more sadder than to talk about this weekend when um, Sophie, um, the mm. British producer... That one was devastating. ...died at like 34 from an accident in um, Athens, Greece, where she'd been staying. We were just talking about two people who, you know, um, were able to realize their um, dreams, you know, late in life and then still became legends. And this is someone who was taken away from us at such a young age and in such a quick time like worked with everyone i mean rihanna to madonna i mean just an astounding um 
one of those people who's called futuristic or like we're constantly like we have years to catch up to them sort of person. And uh, yeah. but you listen to the music and it's all right there. That's not pretension. That's the truth. And anyone who has the willingness to name an album oil of every pearls on insights is just a genius. <laughs> to me. Every single track on I was listening to that this morning and bawling my eyes out. There's just Sophie captured this essence and this emotion that I, I've actually never heard in other artists using really grating synths and grating percussive sounds like you don't expect to feel so so emotionally connected to these songs but they're they're all they're all give me prince pony boy a track on that album gives me so much prince like this is so good yes i listened to it's okay to cry this morning and guess what yeah i cried balling <laughs> balling 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 we agree there's something too you said about like the creating sounds, right? Like she was not sampling. Um, she was sort of creating her own genre of pop music. And it's mm-hmm. it's so interesting too, because you know, I was rereading this article for the 1619 project by Wesley Morris, just about how much music in America um, borrows from blackness, right? You know, and sort of like puts like a white face on it, like every genre really. And it was so interesting. And I think why people loved Sophie so much is that she's creating sort of a genre herself and not mining black people for it, right? She was literally doing her own fucking thing. And on top of that, like Sophie's influence didn't just stay in the pop and electronic world. It extended into hip hop. Like one of my Mm -hmm. favorite tracks that she's produced is a Vince Staples track that features Kendrick Lamar. And she lent her sound to Vince Staples project, Big Fish Theory. And it just, he, if that album totally changed hip hop, at least in like the past five years. And he talked about how you had never seen somebody like working in the studio in just like (laughs) a bubble coat, smoking a cigarette, mm-hmm. uh, every Making story that not people saying share. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Uh, just... And like, it, it's talking about like, if you got too like emotional and deep with some shit, she'd like leave until you were done <laughs> <laughs> with all of that. Uh, <laughs> I, lo- I love that the songs that she did with Ed Staples. And then like, also this K-pop group, Etsy, this song 24 Hours, uh, when a lot of people were sharing their favorite um, Sophie produced tracks, I was like, I'm not seeing 24 hours on this list because I know that not all the girls are listening to K-pop, but she even went over there, you know, and was making shit Mm -hmm. and and helping to influence that sound. So that is really someone who, I guess you could call them like a pop iconoclast because, you know, she's like changing the game and making up her own rules. But she also someone who just had like a reverence for pop music, you know? I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of people thought that her music was a parody um, or she was like mocking pop music when she first came out. But you know, when you first hear a song like It's Okay to Cry, you can tell that she loved pop music. Um, yeah. And that was sort of the point. She gave such good interviews about pop music too, and about how, like, what the goal of it is and how you want to create the brightest possible thing and that th- there's nobility in that goal. It's, it's not, you know, a discardable art, et cetera. Yeah. Mm hmm. She did many things for music, but I would say if she did one thing, you know, it is sort of bridging that gap, you know, between people who maybe didn't feel like pop music could be like a genre for them and sort of bringing them in from this niche, weird space into um, music that I think has always been very um, 
emotional when done the right way and can always sort of make you feel something, you know? I mean, that's the reason I cried to Supreme's records, you know? Um, and mm-hmm. that was Motown creating like a futuristic era of black respectability that didn't exist at the time and um, sort of making it a dominant genre. Um, I think about, you know, Sam Cooke dying, you know, at the age of 33. Um, you know, like people who really were just sort of like, pioneers in music uh, and had so much more to offer. Lastly, I'm diving into um, playlists that people have made of Sophie's music, you know, because I was really more into, you know, the poppier stuff or the Vince Staple stuff. I mean, everything she did was sort of Charlie XCX. I really enjoyed Vroom yeah. Vroom is one of the best pop songs <laughs> ever made. Uh, and also um, she made the best song that Kim Petras ever made, mm. um, you know, um, but you can't talk about Sophie without talking about the fact that she was trans as well. Um, and so she was creating this new genre and new world for music, but also creating a space for herself as a trans woman. And um, it's been beautiful to see tributes from people I know, like um, Rose Damu, you know, who wrote... Um, Sophie hacked the Matrix. She made music that sounded like how being trans feels. I'll love her forever. Just knowing that she was a person who made trans people feel like they belonged. Uh, I've seen a lot of tweets and things from people who have written that um, they didn't really know what trans felt like uh, until they heard Sophie's music, and then it helped them um, realize who they were. So um, I don't know. Music like that is just... So fucking important. Yeah, irreplaceable. I hope that, or rather, I know what will happen is that um, even though she was taken far too soon, um, the amount of people that she has inspired already and will inspire is irreplaceable. Certainly. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, When we're back, we will be joined by Amanda Adoko. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Our guest today is a TV and film writer and founder of the Show Us Your Room Challenge, where she invites TV writers' rooms to show how diverse their rooms are or are not. Her first film, Breaking News in Yuba County, is based on her own play, appeared on the 2017 Blacklist, and is out next week. Please welcome Amanda Idoko. Amanda, it has been <laughs> a hot minute since I've seen you, but yeah. I do want to congratulate you on... Breaking News in Yuba County, your first film. And this is, first of all, this wasn't even happening when we first met, was it? I'd written it, yeah, because I wrote it like years and years ago when I was an assistant, but it really was the last couple years when it finally actually started to like be the process of getting made. And we met just like at someone's birthday party in Hollywood. Yeah. So lovely meeting you, and you were so nice. And then it's been so great to see 
all of this happening for you. Uh, but why don't we go back to that and talk a bit about how your career even started off in Hollywood? Um, because I think that a big conversation that um, is always happening on social media is screenwriting and how do people get into it and how does um, anyone even start a career? And the four of us are all writers, you know? And I feel like we all have different journeys um, to this world. I went into Cornell as a bio pre-med major that was planning to be a doctor. Um, you know, that's the path, like, especially like, you know, for first generation immigrants, I don't know if any of you guys are, it's like doctor, lawyer, engineer, and that was the plan. So I jumped in and changed my major. I was doing theater with concentration in playwriting. So it was always more on the stage side. So after I graduated, I went back to New York, because that's where I'm from, and like my base was there, and I was doing like, you know, the New York theater, like artist scene, like mm -hmm. um, the like off, 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 off Broadway. Like I joined a theater company, a lot of like, you know, you know, free work and like just trying to like get things going. And then I took a TV writing class at the Gotham Writers Workshop. I think that like, cause I was also, I started as an actress, I was also like auditioning, and I think I was just getting frustrated with like the parts I was going out for. Like, I specifically remember getting, like, one, like, audition for Slave Girl number two. And I was just, like, I need to, like, start writing for myself. Like, I was, like, I can't, like, I mean, not even, like, the number one slave. I was, like, no. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm done. I got to start writing for myself again. And so, you know, coming from, like, theater, I wanted to, like, you know, I was, like, really interested in, like, getting into the medium where you can, like, kind of show more stuff without the limitations of a stage. And so I took this TV writing class. And I remember the first spec I wrote was a, um, a park spec and it placed in the Austin Film Festival, which is this really great writers conference. And so I went out there for that and met so many like cool people. I met my writing mentor out there um, and everyone was just like, oh, move to LA. And I was just like, okay, sure. Like, you know, I've only ever lived in New York. I've never lived anywhere else. And so packed up and like came out a couple of months later and so then when I got here, like my mentor, like I was able to get an assistant gig on Bones, which was like my first industry job, like a couple of months after I moved out here. And the great thing about that show, I think I came in, like they were on like season 10 or something by the time I got there. So it was like well-oiled machine. Like, and so mm -hmm. I was the writer's PA, which is like getting lunch, getting coffee, that kind of thing. But the writers were like super gracious. They were just like, you know, you're here, like, you could be in the room, sit at the table, be pitching. And so like really getting to learn from them. And also they were just like, when you have like downtime, like be writing. And so I was just like, okay, yeah, let me make sure I'm like ready for when I do like have an opportunity. And so I knew I wanted to write a feature because I hadn't written one before. And so I took a screenwriting class with this like screenwriter that my acting studio had recommended. And that's like where I wrote Breaking News. And so I was working on it while I was an assistant. And did it, and then like you know, I wrote it, and I was just like, I think this is dope. I was just like, I don't know what to do with it. Like, like who am I going to give this to? And so it did sit for a couple of years, and I kind of kept focus on the TV side. I did the ABC Disney Writing Program, and that's like mm -hmm. what got me staffed on my first show. Mm. Well, congrats to you because I was a finalist in the ABC <laughs> Disney Program in 2007, and they were like, flew me to LA from New York, and then we're like, okay, we're good. 
<laughs> We've met you. Good try. Yes. <laughs> no, but I like apply to like that. Like this is like kind of what I mean by like hustlers mentality. Like I applied to like every single program like three years in a row before I got it, and so like just kind of started working on the on the TV side on the sitcom side. But I feel like you know for me, I always knew I had like a darker sensibility and like wanted to like move move back towards like you know darker comedies and those things that I love to write originally, and so. Probably 2017, 2018, I showed breaking news to my writing group. Like, I'm in this, like, amazing writing group. And, like, the women in that group were just like, whoa, like, why are you sitting on this? Like, what are you doing? I was just like, oh, yeah. Like, why has this, like, been on my shelf for so long? And so, like, I sent it to my reps. And, like, they just started sending it out. And people were reading it and loving it. And, you know, I think that year started, like, you know, my shift from TV to features. And I think from like the energy of it going out that year and people reading it, it was able to, by the end of that year, get onto the blacklist, which is like the list of like the best unproduced screenplays from the year. And I think that like gave it like a stamp of like validation and approval. And I was just also just like, oh, you know, like this is definitely a fickle, you know, industry. Let me like make sure I can get another like feature out as soon as possible. And so like I wrote my second feature as a follow up. And that like got on the blacklist the following year. And I think between the combination of those two, it really kind of like kicked open the door for me on the feature side, which is like kind of where I've been more focused the last two years. Mm -hmm. I want to say about this movie, um, if if people don't know yet, Alice and Janney plays uh, a woman in a small town who sort of is like lacking self-esteem in a seemingly relatable way to start. And then something happens to her husband and then she, this other (laughs) instinct takes over and it turns out she's not the ultra sympathetic protagonist. I don't know if you've ever seen like Philomena. It's something like that where like Judy Dench seems like the normal one. It turns out, nope, not at all. Yeah. So what was it about this kind of character and this kind of situation that you just tapped into it and were writing it, you know, as you were working on other stuff? That energy and that space she starts in was something that I found like very relatable. Like I definitely could relate to it. This idea of like wanting to be seen and wanting to be recognized and like wanting to be loved and just like feeling like the world doesn't appreciate you. Um, And so I was definitely, you know, drawn to that energy. And then like, you know, I love like chaos. I'm just like, how can I push this to the extreme? Like, you know, take this person who has all of this and make her, you know, like you just like, how far would someone go to get that thing they want to get that attention they want to like feel that like, you know, emptiness inside of them. And so I definitely like just love the idea of like pushing someone to 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 the far extremes. And I love like ensemble pieces. I love like when one person makes a bad choice that like spirals out and affects people they don't know. And so I definitely created a map when I was doing this and wanted to have that like energy of just like how does this one woman's action like ripple through and like cause so much chaos and mess in her town. Which she does. And my God is the ensemble great. I was t- telling uh, Aida and uh, Ira beforehand, it has all these people you can just trust to slay in these roles. Like Regina Hall specifically, like, Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, the woman just says, fuck you. And you're like, nobody has ever said, fuck you better. <laughs> yeah. So fucking brilliant. Oh, I love it. Yeah, just like this. It was like every, as the casting announcements were coming out, I was literally just like, my jaw stayed on the floor. I was just, could it, it was, I was like blown away that like, I was able to get this level of like talent in this cast for like this movie. I was just, I mean, it's like still surreal. 
I truly think Regina was on Keep It. Uh, and we talked about, uh, I was like, I know, Amanda, you're doing this movie, um, Breaking News in Yuba. And so, like, it feels nice to see this finally alive. Yeah. Uh, I can't, yeah, I can't wait for people to see it. It's was a great film. And I, I'm, I'm curious in this. This story, by the way, you've had of you took a screenwriting class and then wrote a film and then it got made. <laughs> and then the second one is they're both on Blacklist. Like that is uh, such an incredible feat. And yeah, I, as Lewis was saying, to see Wanda Sykes pop up in anything, I'm like, yep, I'm here. Mm-hmm. I'm tuned in and I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> but I wanted to ask, what's, what's the process after that? How involved are you as, as the writer in, you know, talking to the production company and figuring out who the director is and, you know, learning about casting. What is that process like? Uh, this is like being produ- was produced by like the Blacklist and like Nine Stories, which is like, you know, super writer-driven companies. And so I think that they, you know, were good about like trying to keep me involved and like letting me know what was going on through the process. Um, and I was on set for when we were shooting. And so I just remember getting there just being so nervous and like, you know, just like feeling like, cause like I didn't have like that much production experience and this is all still so new to me and like, you know, not, not knowing, you know, everything that's going on, but like it was such an open and welcoming space and just like getting to be there and getting to learn, you know, on set and just like see how a production comes together was like such a great experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking, you know, of, the Blacklist, which was um, a producer of it. You landed on the Blacklist twice. Um, <laughs> tell us a bit about what that does for you as a writer to get on the Blacklist. I feel like for a lot of people, the Blacklist feels like that holy grail of I'm here, I'm writing a screenplay, or not even in LA, like I'm at home writing a screenplay. And it's like, if I get there, you know, then my career can take off. You know, what's that moment like when you find out that you're on it? Um, and then how's your life feel, you know, immediately after that and how even people interact with you in the industry? You know, like I was saying, like that that first year before breaking news got on the blacklist, I was meeting like I a lot of like people like they were doing like the water bottle tour, like meeting everyone who's just like, we love this script, but like, you know, it's not really a movie that like can get made. And so it was like, well, how about this? And so I think that first year I was just like, oh, like everyone loves this script, but like no one wants to make it. Like, you know, that that was like, you know, the shock. And, but then like after it got on the blacklist and then all of a sudden it was just like, who's like, who's making it? And like, what's going on? I think it gave like people permission, like not even permission, but I feel like people sometimes are afraid to like kind of take a chance until someone else takes a chance on you kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so I think that gave it, a level of validation that like made people more now willing to take a chance, which is like so unfortunate that like you need, you need like, you know, external stamp of approval to get anything done. Of course. If there's anything that's truly a symptom of Hollywood, it is, <laughs> I think most writers, well-known ones too, would tell you that they wrote something that like in, in retrospect now, it seems like, how did this movie not get made? Uh, it seems just like you can, you can see it, you know, it's a, perfect sort of film you know there's always the story of like everyone reads it and they're like you know i absolutely love this and i just don't think it can be made yet or i would love to make it yet uh and i guess it can be frustrating you know as people who want to see fun new stories from new voices too like yourself yeah and it's so hard to like get a movie made i think i've been like super anxious and like you know worried about what people are gonna think and like worried about if people are gonna like it if they're gonna like me and I feel like I've kind of let like my anxiety 
and like my fear of judgment kind of cloud this moment in a way and like had to like really have my friends and my family like they kind of like got me together and just like really reminded me of the accomplishment that like this is like you know because I feel like in doing that I was like kind of treating it like it was nothing but it is a big deal because it is really hard to get a movie made and it's like you know especially hard you know for for black women to get their movies made like exponentially harder for a black woman to get their movie made the odds of like a black woman getting their movie made in in Hollywood is like less than 2%. And Mm -hmm. so it's extraordinary, you know, like, and and I'm definitely proud of myself because I know how hard it is to do this. Chic accomplishment too. Full of actors we love. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Like write a movie that attracted this talent. Like it's just, I mean, I, 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 and it's something I'm definitely working on, but it's just like, yeah, no, like I, I need to. And I think everyone who gets a movie made, like, you know, needs to acknowledge that that accomplishment because it's so hard to do. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to thank you for the work that you've done online and demanding transparency for writers' rooms about, you know, talking about the diversity and inclusion and if they actually have black faces in their writers' room. Yeah. And I know I know that the people who contributed are are not usually the ones who have the problem, but it was still nice to see all of the <laughs> black faces and what what made you want to do that? I mean, are you in a writers' room right now? Uh, for a television show? I'm not in a writer's room right now, but I think Show Us Your Room like kind of came from, I was like the only black, because I was the only person of color, I'm pretty sure, on like the first couple of shows I was on. And I just feel like being in this space, and that's like the standard, you know, that's like the norm. I'm and shocked. So- Bones had such like a black <laughs> yeah. sensibility. Believe it or not, Ira, I was the only black person in the writer's room. I thought it was a spinoff happened. of that Snoop Dogg <laughs> horror movie, Bones. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah I mean I think that like you know especially in this like industry that like you know wants to like pat itself on the back for diversity and like you know especially as they started get you know being more diverse in front of the camera I think it was just like no but who's actually doing it like you know who's actually being proactive in diversity because I think that like we'd gotten to a point where it was either like oh no we're doing it or um the problem was like kind of this is like, oh, this is just an industry problem. This is just like, you know, a Hollywood issue. But I was just like, by making it a faceless like thing, it, I think it took away from personal accountability. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I wanted to like, you know, things to be transparent and be like, no, like it's not an industry problem in your room. Like what does your specific room look like? You have control <laughs> <Yeah>. over that. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, what can you, what can you do to like change it? And I think not only the children of the room, but like any writer in that room, I feel like, you, if you walk into a room and you're just like, ooh, everyone in this room is, is white, I feel like anyone in that room could be like, um, hi, can we change this? <laughs> like, can we, like, you know, fix this? Because this is not, this isn't right. And it's also just, like, not beneficial for good storytelling. Like, you know, if everyone looks exactly the same and everyone, like, had the same background and has the same ideas, you're not going to get as nuanced or as interesting stories as you can if you're, like, representing, like, a wider swath of people. Yeah. Were there any responses that sort of, like, shocked you from Show Us Your Room Challenge, like, positive and negative? Because, like, as you said, you know, like, everyone, obviously, who's doing the Show Us Your Room Challenge, they know that they got some people of color up in their room, right? You know, like, you're not going to do Show Us Your Room Challenge and it's all white men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, we showed you. Deal with it. <laughs> that would have actually that's actually what I wanted those rooms to do I want like I feel like it would have been like baller for like an all-white room to be like oh shit 
here's our room, but you know what? We see it now and we're going to change. I feel like that was like the goal. It was just like, don't like hide from it. Like, you know, actually do something, like own it and do something, make a change. It was not surprising that most of the rooms that participated were led. I think it was like 75% of the rooms that participated were show run by um, a person of color or a woman. And so it's just like, it's clear who is proactively hiring diverse rooms. And so I was just like, you know, with that, it's just like, we need not only on like the lower levels, but we need more black writers to like have overall deals to be showrunners. We need more black execs. Cause like, you know, you need people, the gatekeepers to be diverse cause they're the ones who are hiring. From that, it was clear that like people of color and women were the ones who were actually like being proactive in that. And so, you know, give them all the showrunner jobs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'll take them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. How are you going to start running a room? <laughs> uh, Amanda, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, I mean, congrats on breaking news in Yuba County. Um, this is such a moment, uh, truly. I mean, you're with um, an amazing cast of actors, you know, in your first film, and that is landmark to be honest uh and thank you for the show as your room challenge you know i think my room did participate back in 2018 um so that was fun you know we had to make sure that the people of color were uh, <laughs> it was diverse but we had to make sure the people of color were all there in the front day and there that the day <laughs> like, um, um, I run, I, please don't call out six Studios for like you know agency suites like everyone yes, like right. be more transparent yeah. about like the diversity you have and like mm-hmm. actually like do something don't just talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Appreciate it was so great As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. In a story being described as David versus Goliath meets the dot-com bubble meets an episode of Industry, mm-hmm. the mm. saga of GameStop, Reddit, Robinhood, and Wall Street has drawn the attention of everyone from AOC to Elon Musk. There's memes. People are talking about the free market. Like we have any business. <laughs> <laughs> when this happened, I sent Aida and Lewis a text and was like, who don't talk about this? What? Yeah. <laughs> I'm confused. Yeah. I was actually appreciative of the fact that usually on Twitter, when there's like a weird, abnormally large, interest-peaking story, everybody becomes an expert. And it was the opposite this time. People were like, 
I don't know one note of this. Not going to attempt it. Right. There was a lovely Twitter thread that explained it in terms of Taylor Swift and the Scooter Braun um, drama. That's the language we need. I was like, okay, Swifties (laughs) doing the work. But um, why don't we hear from our resident Swifty? Aida Osman. Uh, <laughs> right. I remember you liked Evermore, okay? That's true. Okay, let's not talk about that ever again. <laughs> you did respond to us and say that you were going to give us an explainer. I did, I did. And I think my only real qualification to this is that I'm in New York right now and I can kind of see Wall Street from sure. my hotel room. So that's Bitch, that's are it. you Carmen San Diego? I know, right. <laughs> yeah, I had to come here for a pilot presentation that fell through. So I'm just quarantining in a blizzard alone right now. She's fucking Northwest, she'll be on Mount Rushmore next week. Yeah, (laughs) reporting live from Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, Guys, what's going on right now is one of the biggest Wall Street brawls to actually happen in like decades. This is this is wild. It's insane. Pretty much, what you need to know the basic stuff is that in the past few years there have been commission-free trading apps that have entered the market, like Robinhood and Webull. Robinhood is clearly the one that we're talking about in this story, where people like me and you, investors, can get on and buy stocks immediately right there in the moment. Now, also know that there is yeah, a bunch of 14-year-olds on Reddit who are internet bros. They Their, their tagline for the subreddit is is 4chan if it had a Bloomberg terminal. So this is the kind of guys that you're dealing with. Oh, I'm okay. frightened. Yeah. I'm frightened. <laughs> okay, great. So so currently right now, there's a lot of stuff uh, with hedge funds that are short-selling GameStop, which means they're betting on GameStop to fail because GameStop is a company that is essentially blockbuster right. for video games. So you know why it's failing, because of what I just described it as. Um, <laughs> and in an attempt to kind of like make up for what the hedge funds are doing, these guys have decided to invest a lot of money into GameStop, and that's why you're seeing GameStop stock go up like 400% in the past week, 1,600% in the past like month alone, because they've decided that they're going to hurt the hedge funds and also make a lot of money by investing in GameStop. So that's where this whole blow-up has happened. And, you know, beyond them making a lot of money, they're causing a stir, and the hedge funds are really, really mad about it, as if they're not, they don't spend all their days manipulating the market in their own private ways, you know. This is where we're at right now, is that they're trying to do a coup. They're trying to take over and stick it to the man, and everyone is mad and screaming foul play. But they're doing it online because these children aren't old enough to storm Wall Street. Exactly. You know, Mm -hmm. like their parents aren't going to sign a permission slip um, for them to fly to Wall Street. Yeah, the way you described them, I pictured the Burger King Kids Club taking over (laughs) Wall Street. So (laughs) They're doing... A skateboard coming right up, you know, under Trump Tower. Yeah. Is that on Wall Street? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it might as well be. It's an interesting story, too, that because after this happened, Robinhood shut down stock trading on the app. So now it's a conversation of what's, uh, you know, allowed and what regulations need to be put on the market because there are none. <laughs> right. You know, I think at its core, um, it is a story about inequality in America, right? You know, and who gets to control the money in America. And it is something that always seems, you know, like nebulous and distant, the idea of Wall Street, right? I mean, you watch Mm -hmm. The Wolf of Wall Street, you watch Gordon Gecko do his thing, you know, you (laughs) don't watch Wall Street too. Money Never Sleeps. Carrie Mulligan, (laughs) what were you thinking? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and this is the first time people have been truly trying to under 
understand it. Mm -hmm. Do I understand it? I understand that weeks before this, uh, a friend was trying to get all of our mutual friends to, you know, like get Don't say to buy GameStop stock. No, to okay. get <laughs> e trade to get e trade accounts and like start actually buying stocks. Yes. Uh, and I had a moment where I'm like, I'm an adult. Should I like be buying stocks? And then I was like, you know what? This is too much work for me. It's a and lot. And the to GameStop sit stuff happened, and I was like, it's still too much work for me. No. Yeah. It's for me. It's right back to the best supporting actress Wikipedia. That's something I can look at. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing on E Trade is for me. Yeah. The the market is extremely volatile now because of it. So everyone is mad. It's not just the people who are involved in the GameStop situation. And you know, I, AOC broke it all down for me, and I'm really just repeating everything AOC has said because that is how I live life now. The most fun part about this has actually just been like the involvement of GameStop, which, as you said, is like the mm -hmm. blockbuster for video games. And I have not thought. <laughs> about GameStop in a minute. And in turn, I feel like my text threads about this whole drama then just started turning to us talking about the video games that we missed. Yes. That, oh, yeah. That certainly was fun. It had a lot of The conversations about, we should be having. Yeah, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. No, uh, I mean, I actually have very strong memories of what it was before GameStop. It used to be called Funko Land. <laughs> and they would, re they would release a catalog so that funny. looked like, with like micro print of everything they sold. And my God, you, I would spend $70 on a Super Nintendo game. Honey, that was a racket. Mm -mm. You know, it's like how TVs used to be way more expensive. And now technology has made it such that you get more bang for your buck now. Like, I think it's, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're likelier to get a good deal on a video game now. Yeah. I think the best analogy for what's happening right now is literally the plot of The Big Short, where you have a bunch of men who, in, who knew that the housing market was going to crash, so they decided to short mm -hmm. sell what was happening there, thinking that they could make money off of it, and they did, clearly. You've seen it. And um, it's the same thing that's happening now, but now these, these kids on Reddit are trying to stop the big guys from making money by putting a lot of buying power into GameStop and making it so that you can't predict that GameStop is crashing now because look at their stock market. Wow, you're like mm -hmm. Selena Gomez in the big short. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Selena Gomez, girl, she got a new cooking show that I am watching. It oh, is yeah? good. It I is good. I love Selena Gomez plus Chef. What have it's I It's called Selena Gomez plus Chef and it is on <laughs> HBO Max. And thank you, Aida, because it is the moment. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun. It's light. She's getting told how to cook. It's a white, bright look. It's just very... Oh. Don't worry about GameStop. Just worry about her cooking. Okay. You just said something <laughs> Nancy Myers-ish to me, so I will be tuning in <laughs> to that kitchen and the brightness thereof. The beauty of this has been thinking about how GameStop is still around because you know what's not around? Blockbuster. Mm -mm. Uh, and I just think about like how you could get video games now anyway, which is like, you know, like you don't even need to go out and get the physical disc anymore. You can just download that shit to your PlayStation. Girl, I'm in the Nintendo store. I'm in, I'm on Steam. I'm not going nowhere yeah. <laughs> to buy a physical hard copy of a game. So I'm shocked what? that it was still around. Yeah, I mean, I oh, think Oh, there's one right next to where too. I live, so I see it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can confirm. Boots on the ground. Yeah. Boots on the ground, Lewis. <laughs> go, go inside to GameStop and ask what's happening. Hello. I would also just say about video games, like, so the last 10 years of video games don't mean anything to me. I just haven't played anything at all. And my God, it's like if you missed movies starting at 1930. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's just like that's when yeah. all of the You're like, amazing they have things sound happened. now? Yeah. <laughs> What? <laughs> How? The talkies. Yes. <laughs> Nobody's playing a piano outside of the movie. Yeah. Uh -uh. It's funny that it is a convergence of two things where I feel like a idiot 
talking about that because listen, I love video games to an extent. I have a PlayStation Four, not a Five. Um, much to the chagrin, because you're a socialist. Of, um, yeah, much well, much to the chagrin <laughs> of my family members who definitely wanted me to try to find PlayStation Fives for them for Christmas, and I was like, "Baby, it ain't happening," and I will not be scouring the internet. <laughs> to find one that is priced at like $6,000. box. That's you. insane. <laughs> but my video game tastes are really just like, I got the PlayStation 4 because I wanted to play Spider-Man. Because you love a story. You know? But what I think about video games, it's yeah. Cute it's games. Mario. Yeah. I play Crash Bandicoot. I fucking love oh, yeah. Crash Bandicoot. Okay? Crash Team Racing. That's my brothers and I bursting into tears because we yes. are crybaby oh. boys. Yeah. When he spins, jumps on those boxes... Baby, you ain't never seen somebody do it like that. Marsupials have power. Never forget. <laughs> Meanwhile, I do not know how many Final Fantasies there are. Um, I thought like RPG well, games stopped with like Doom and GoldenEye. <laughs> I, RPGs always escape me. I'm sorry. When there's too many boxes of text to read, like I, I know what a book is. I'll pick up a book. You know what I mean? <laughs> Don't trick me yeah, into right. literature right now. <laughs> The last game I played was quite literally called The Last of Us. Just anything zombie and apocalyptic, I'm here for. Mm. But usually I just want an Animal Crossing. I just want something simple. I want to live life on a screen. Yeah. That's what I want. Roller coaster tycoon, things like that. Things where I am like a baron and I occasionally drop, mm. you know, um, people at the concession stand into the ocean for no reason. Exactly. Or like The Sims, drown your neighbors because you're bored, whatever. Mm-hmm. Or I'm with my bitches playing Zelda doing puzzles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what we're doing. We're doing fairy puzzles. But even then, I feel like when people are like, Ira or Lewis, or like, yeah, like, how do you like consume so much media, right? Like, I feel like it's because. I'm not playing video games. That's the answer, yes. Mm-hmm. 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 I didn't even finish the Spider-Man game, by the way. Because that shit was taking too damn long. I couldn't learn how to swing. I tried to swing through the buildings. I just could not get it. I couldn't get it. I stopped. I had to stop. And then it's stopping and giving you story, which is cute. But then I'm like, oh, you got to... The thing that got me was like, there's points where you have to find things around the city. Is You're just like walking around like a roof trying to like find it mm-hmm. and I was like th- well this has taken me an hour <laughs> also bitch I'm Spider-Man I don't gotta do this <laughs> right I should be above whatever this situation else. is yeah <laughs> I definitely have had more fun getting back into like like I said like the Street Fighter Mortal Kombat's like the fighting games right are good for me I'm good with violence definitely definitely um Women who know kung fu, I'm interested in. Bitches King Kong. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, yes. Yes, Miss King Kong. No, women (laughs) who, when they are punched, that make noises like female tennis players mid-game. That's what I (laughs) 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 Speaking of games, Carmen Sandiego. (laughs) Oh, sure. Right there. Yes, Carmen Sandiego. Bad guys should have pun names. Yeah, Definitely still um, in my adult life. Play um, Mario Kart. I can't count the amount of times that, like, um, after like bars closed in the pre-pandemic time, like you would just be like at someone's house, um, stoned at like three a.m. playing Mario Kart. Oh yeah, that that's when video games enter my life. Mm-hmm. I, my when I'm playing Mario Kart, I always pick the princess due to who I am. And in my head, I always give her the stakes of she's a single mom who needs this gig. So there are, there's just an added, like it's a TV movie in my Oof, head for me. For sure. Yeah. You, you know what the princess is? She's actually a capitalist. Oh, right. Well, they all are. And she is making these proletariat brothers, Mario and Luigi, do her bidding. 
These swarthy men. Maybe we should let Princess Peach get killed. Wow. Off with her head. You really turned me around on this issue. <laughs> I'm more of a Yoshi girl myself because I feel like he gets treated like a second class citizen and he deserves better. Well, it's because he's gay. <laughs> No, you're going to say green. <laughs> <laughs> I think Yoshi is gay. I think he's queer. I think this is... Toad more gay than Yoshi to me. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yoshi's like Tigger. I, I mean, I think you're confusing star power for homosexuality. Like like who? D- Tigger. <laughs> what? <Say> Tigger. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I remember reaching. The reaches. Uh, Black History oh, yeah. Month. Poor Lewis. Make your point. It's okay. <laughs> you know me just screaming that word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh, that, remember, remember GameStop that, that, that'll, be a, that'll be in the um, lifetime keep it story okay <laughs> uh, the actual weirdest thing about this story that I am going to mention to all of you now so you can all be as um, traumatized as I was when I was going to search Robin Hood on Twitter uh, I don't have an account anymore People, please do not DM me uh, on Instagram and ask me for my new account, but I can still use the search function. I was looking up Robin Hood, right? <laughs> and of course, the internet then takes that to uh, making jokes about actual Robin Hood, right? And then like Disney's Robin Hood. Um, and there's always that conversation about um, whether or not Robin Hood the fox is sexy. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh and it's God. not just what the furries having the conversation. It's like people are just like, man, Robin Hood was kind of sexy. I've heard Mindy Kaling say it. Yeah. Right. Why is that a conversation we're having? He's clearly right. sexy. But then, <laughs> yeah, right. I agree, Aida. He, that, the fox is sexy. But what I did not need to see was Robin Hood porn. Oh, God. Uh-uh. And I forgot that if there is any animated thing porn exists for it. Um, so within threads on Twitter, I'm seeing just like artist renderings of like Robin Hood fucking blue. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> like, oh, good. Like the snake from Robin Hood finances. jerking him off. Like, oh. like the Disney porn I discovered by just trying to look up Robin Hood on Twitter. I'm never going back to that app. Oh, no. If it's an animated Disney animal, someone has drawn it with incredible pecs. I'm talking about Pongo from 101 Dalmatians. Honey, he is bending Roger the fuck over. That's what you need to know. Yeah. I'm so uncomfortable right now. Well, this is, this is art now. This is the art world. So you're uncomfortable with modernity and you're uncomfortable yes. with nuance. Okay. I don't need to think about the splinters Robin Hood is getting from the image I saw of him railing Pinocchio. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, Walt, look what you fucking did. <laughs> All right, I think we properly explained that, right? Yeah, everybody's yeah. on board. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole thing for me has been like when I watch the show Industry, which is great, but for 60% of the episode, I do not know what they're talking about. And I'm like, can we get back to the drugs? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the they are, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who's yeah. hot? And the pretty black girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So someone make this movie and just have a lot of sex and drugs and attractive Brits in it. Thank you so much. It's fine with me. <laughs> yeah. All right. When we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Wahoo. Mm-hmm. What are we keeping this week, y'all? Um, mine's fast. 
Mine is to keep it to what has become an unhinged budget situation on RuPaul's Drag Race. I just want to say that I haven't started watching the UK season yet, which I know people are really obsessed with. I'm, you know, it's good. A, a xenophobe, so I'm sticking with the American. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but on this season, there are a, a bunch of uh, amazing queens, lots of uh, comedy superpowers, lots of bitchy queens that I'm kind of on the fence about. But one thing that has become very standard is that everybody's looks, and this particular week everybody had to do three looks, are so pristine, it feels to me like we have almost gotten away from what drag is, which is not always a DIY situation, but it certainly is not, we're the most expensive thing possible. And I feel like it's now become hard for me to judge the artistry of the queens because they basically are outsourcing a key part of their drag to you know, what, what looked to me like having connections, Mm -hmm. you know, like here's an extremely expensive thing that someone lent me or that I, maybe I had the capacity to buy and it just takes something away from me. It's like less fun. It's become another show to me in a certain way. And I'm worried we'll never come down or that people are so used to seeing highly expensive, utterly perfect looks that anything less than that will seem deficient. And it's not. So I'm, I'm a little worried. Yeah, you know, I want to point out too that um, there's there's always been those like fashion queens on the show, right? And then you started at a certain point to realize that those people are either just buying incredibly expensive outfits, or like I think in like Gigi Good, the term of Gigi Good, what was it like? Her mm-hmm. mother like making things for her. So it's just like you are having a competition where half of the people just sort of like have access to all these things. And unfortunately it's usually like white contestants. Uh, And then you have like black contestants on the show who were, you know, like um, maybe from like New York or like Chicago or something. And like, they are making their own stuff. They're really doing like drag, like in local bars and in the spirit of what you think drag is and the spirit that the show was born from. It's just insane to see them like competing on the same stage and mm-hmm. the, and no recognition from the judges too of like the income disparity uh, between contestants too. Because if you're praising someone for like an amazing garment, right, that they didn't even fucking make, mm-hmm. exactly, right, 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 and then you're dragging another contestant for one that they did make, how that work? Right, it, it's like. They just need to standardize it, like mm. figure out a way to like level the playing field in some way. I, it reminds me of if you remember the first season of Project Runway, which is now like seventeen years ago. In the <laughs> in the final runway, one of the finalists, um, Karasan, was busted for having somebody lend her expensive shoes for her looks, mm-hmm. and like the producers tried to address it, but now it feels to me like on RuPaul's Drag Race, they're saying, "Oh, whatever, your friend lent you something expensive, just use it." Yeah, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's not right. You know, so to me, it's really reminiscent of what happens in rap culture now. Whereas we've kind of modernized and gotten older, the, the art form has gotten older and more publicized. It's okay to have ghostwriters, and it's okay to you know not be the person making and fully creating and producing your own songs. Um, and that just, just takes away some of the nobility, I think, of the art form. But cute, nice gowns, though. <laughs> and, and, and like with that it's unclear to me who is building what. You know, like, so I'm mm-hmm. watching RuPaul's Drag Race. I'm like, I don't even know if you're like 99% involved with what's going on here or like 4% and other people are having meetings to decide what you wear. It's just, yeah. it's an interesting conundrum for the show to be in because of its success. As I haven't read it yet, but I'm very excited to dive into um, RuPaul's autobiography from the 90s, which is out of print. Mm. Um, and like even looking at the photo on the 
book jacket, I was like, this is a completely different RuPaul. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's mm-hmm. like, you think of the RuPaul that came into America's consciousness is more of that, like, ragtag, do-it-yourself, sort of, like, grunge, punk RuPaul. And the show was definitely yeah. that, you know? Um, it felt like uh, it was dangerous when it premiered. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think today is what the... Um, 13th anniversary of the show too mm-hmm. as we're recording now and so it is just um it's weird to see how it's transformed and i know some of those earlier seasons were rough um in terms of the yeah, editing and and the vaseline that seemed to be smeared <laughs> on the lens like you were watching um a daytime soap opera but um wow i don't know yeah people are really on different performance playing fields and it is definitely a weird thing to behold and a thing that goes unacknowledged on the show too right so mm-hmm. um it makes it harder to really even judge people you know and so i feel like then you're just judging people on personality and performance and um i do like the challenges where they have to make their own thing then yeah uh, which is by mm-hmm. the way extremely hard i don't mean to say that like every challenge should be that but yeah and by the way go simone mm-hmm. we're all Team Simone here, I assume. Yes, yes. Simone is the truth. Yes. The moment. But also, go to Misha Iman. I, I'm a fan of her too. Untucked last week. Yeah. People are like, yes. she, she came at her when she didn't have to. Excuse me, everything she said was right. Don't be weird. Everything she said was right. And to recap, she started a fight with Candy Muse on Untucked after Candy was admittedly being arrogant, and I'm a fan of Candy Muse, um, but I, what I love the most about it is that Tamisha was in the bottom three. It could have very easily been asked to lip sync and could have been sent home, but Tamisha seems to be a smart person who was like, you know what I'm going to do? Give the producers a narrative that makes them keep me <laughs> the next few weeks. That was a cute idea. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, congrats to her. Uh, Aida, what is your keep it? My keep it this week is about AOC cynics mm. because mm. AOC, you know, between recently talking about GameStop and Rob, the Robin Hood fiasco that we were just talking about and also her coming out again on her Instagram live, which she does frequently to talk about the storming of the Capitol and, you know, to talk about that shrew looking man, Ted Cruz and the, the horrible thing. Wow. She's still... She's still talking about the Capitol? Get over it. (laughs) I know. It's been so long. It was just like a potential hostage situation. It was nothing crazy. Like, she... AOC... I'm sure all of us have a soft spot in our hearts for AOC because she is just... I mean, she's my woman, is what Mm -hmm. she is. But she's a very public person. A public person who has been on Jesus and Meryl twice, and I literally wouldn't mind a third. She went on live to talk about the storming of the Capitol and how Republican members of Congress are still telling her and everyone in the situation to calm down and to forget about what happened. And then she goes on to talk about how that is reminiscent of of abusers and people who, you know, are deliberately kind of want to change the narrative and silence the people that they abuse, like Ted Cruz is doing right now. And she takes that moment of vulnerability to tell us that she's also a, a survivor of sexual assault. And it was, you know, a beautiful couple minutes on live and she was clearly so open and vulnerable and honest about it. And she didn't have to do that. The idea of a congressperson telling us those things is so foreign to me. Like she is really a, a pioneer in such a beautiful way. 
But everything I saw online was more so about God. AOC always does this and she's trying to ingratiate herself and she makes up stories. I saw some of the most foul things about AOC that it was actually so difficult to read. And I just want people to stop. Keep it to people who take those moments to think that somebody has such awful intentions that they would lie about that. Like she's already a congresswoman. What does she need to do? Why would she need to continue to lie? I get so frustrated. That is horrible. It's yeah, it's not the best. It's not the best on Twitter, but it, it never is. Well, it's also just like it's the same type of people. It's like I can't picture you listening to any woman that isn't like your mom or your girlfriend anyway. So why are you jumping in on this? Um, <laughs> if that. Yeah, right. No, right. Imagine them just sort of like giving in. Uh, mm-hmm. No, it's pathetic. It's, it's that whole like Hillary Clinton, like treat women with suspicion just because thing. And it's like, think of who we haven't been treating with suspicion for years and years. How about people like fucking Ted Cruz, who just reigns supreme with no skills whatsoever and actively suck all the time? Well, Hillary and Bill did kill Vince Foster. In a nice way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've actually really loved AOC staying on Ted Cruz's neck. Because in the GameStop situation, right, she was tweeting about it, and then he tried to quote tweet her with, like, I agree, you know, we need to hold, like, mm-hmm. Wall Street, like, Robin Hood, um, and uh, people who, like, try to manipulate the market accountable. And she was like, bitch, did you just try to have me killed? <laughs> and it is, it is wild to me see, like, fucking gritting Republicans talk about... Um, we had a closed door meeting with um, President Biden about, you know, like the coronavirus relief package, you know, and like um, getting money to people in America who need it. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck what these Republicans want to do in the name of bipartisanship, because bipartisanship does not exist when you have allowed this type of shit and rhetoric to happen. So stay on these, stay on these bitches next, AOC. Yes. Cory Bush, too, mm-hmm. tweeting about the fact that she had to move her fucking office away from Marjorie Taylor Greene's. Why does Marjorie Taylor Greene even have an office? Isn't she just parked in like a van outside the Capitol? <laughs> no, it's like she, she has a megaphone. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Grilling beans from a can and just scarfing them down before she talks about <laughs> Jews in space. Ugh, unbelievable. Ira, what's your keep it? My keep it goes to the collective of Stephanie Germanata, Lady Gaga, and mm-hmm. Nabisco. <laughs> because I... No, I am a salty cracker, so you have to be careful <laughs> with what you say to me. I have tasted these Chromatica limited edition Oreos. They are the most disgusting thing. Oh, no. <laughs> Stephanie. They are, they are cardboard. They are... So what you need to know is they don't taste like regular Oreos. They're actually like a variation of the golden Oreos. Okay. Which were already bad. Yeah. yeah. You know, like I have a, I have a friend who um, always orders them for parties. Uh, my friend Sam does. Uh, and you eat them sort of out of obligation, but I am in no way a fan of golden Oreos. And then you have this with like, they're dyed, you know, green. Like the cream is green. The cookie is pink. And just does it taste good? I've tried to like offer them to Fred's. They didn't like them. So many people went out and like bought them in droves too. And now they're like, oh, wait. I don't like these. And I'm just wondering what is going on with Miss Gaga in general. You know? Because this fiasco comes after 
um, we realized that she should never sell merchandise ever again. <laughs> oh my God. No, I'm still getting the whatever, the, the Chromatica poppers I bought in <laughs> 2009. <laughs> I know they're stale by now. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably has not even made jock straps or sweatpants for people who ordered them. I think I've maybe even said on here before that I had to email the Chromatica store and say, just refund my fucking money because I was never going to get these sweatpants that I ordered, uh, and it was bordering on obnoxious at this point, because I'd ordered these, what, around May, and it was like December, and I hadn't received them yet. And all of this is stemming from the fact that, like, Chromatica came out at the beginning of last year, right? And um, we were expecting, like, a music cycle. Obviously, the pandemic has happened, but, like, the lack of album promotion, the lack of flavor in the Oreos, any handling of this merchandise, and then now you're like releasing limited edition Oreos. What the fuck are you doing? Who needed this? Though I guess they're all cleared out at Target too. Like it's like a gay meat yes. meat cute in the cookie aisle at Target. <laughs> <laughs> You have people running out to buy disgusting packages of Oreos, and now they're what? Selling them on eBay? I don't know. Yeah, it's a Crystal Pepsi situation. <laughs> it reminds me of when you look up old Jello flavors and you realize, oh, they tried selling like broccoli Jello once upon a time. No. You know, people make bad decisions. It, some vegetable, it might be like asparagus or something. I eat it, it's real. That's absolutely disgusting. Yeah. In a way, it makes a weird sort of sense because, Lewis, I think you remember from our childhood that, um, Every movie that came out that was marketed towards kids, like, basically had their own cereal. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, like, a Happy Meal or something. Yeah. Yeah. But, mm. I don't know. This, this is taking it a step too far. Like, like Chromatica has had so many um, mishaps and diminishing returns since May of 2020 that I'm just like, now you're dropping Oreos that don't even fucking taste good. That is a shame. You know what? Maybe may, maybe Dua did deserve the Grammy noms over Chromatica. <laughs> this is what we're getting. And then I think if Chromatica was nominated for a Grammy, would we have to be enduring this? Ooh, you think this is revenge? Yeah. <laughs> and also, by the way, Nabisco canceled my favorite snack of all time, which was called Doodads in the late 80s. And they were like Chex Mix, hmm. but they had like little cheesy things in them. If you guys want to talk about Doodads, get right in my mentions because I am always ready to go. <sighs> Just another symptom of what the pandemic has done to us, you know? Right. Good and bad. And this is, this is the worst. This is truly, truly the worst. But this, I still want to buy them and taste them. That's where we're at, though. Like, that's the fucking annoying thing. I got to have one. I got to have one. I have a whole unopened one. I will drop it off whenever you get back in L.A. I hate that they're green and pink. Like, it's watermelon flavored or just the hint? Just died. Just died. They're the golden Ugh. Oreos, but mm. with, a, with, a, with a disgusting aftertaste. <laughs> okay, can't wait to try it. Thank you to Amanda Adoko. Um, that has been our episode. Thank you for listening. Okay, Lewis actually logged off, um, and it's just me and Aida now. And <laughs> one more keep it. After dark. To, to people who have been sending black people Emails asking them to participate in Black History Month things. Please stop, stop it. Stop. Stop it. I don't need a list of black writers and black directors and black. Those are my friends, okay? I, I don't need it. I don't need HBO Max to give me a bunch of black movies to watch. Hulu <laughs> don't need to do that. Netflix don't need to do that. I've already seen them, okay? I know. I've seen Belly. I don't need you to tell me to watch Belly this month. I'm just so irritated. Also, 
a lot of email asks with, um, hey, we're putting together this package on like black joy or like we're talking about like what mm-hmm. you could do to support Black History Month. And it already includes this person and this person. And I'm like, I'm one, not doing free labor for you. Two, mm-hmm. please stop. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone. This is not the month that I should have to work for you. Let me rest. Let me let, let me just rest, please. Anyway. That being said, I'm glad they're celebrating Black History Month, but it's just, it's annoying. It feels phony and you can kind of see through it when all these black corporations on February 1st just had these emails ready to go. Well, I mean, social ready. Ju- social justice really vanished after June last year, didn't it? Mm-mm. Not deleting the little posts. Not deleting it. <laughs> archi- not archiving every post that says BLM, huh? We've seen it. Where are the influencers doing their black squares again? Mm-mm. We need it. We need it. <laughs> all right. Let's really keep it this week. <laughs> Lewis will never hear that segment. He, he, I don't think he will. I, I'm, yeah. Actually, I'm sure Lewis will hear this. He'll listen back to it just to make sure that he hit all of his notes and they match up with Wikipedia. Yeah. So he'll he'll listen back. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Caroline Reston and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. I think I've heard of him. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nar Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Stay safe. Be blessed. God loves you. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.